This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for May 15th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Authentic Christianity than that first generation, can you? I mean, they'd spent three years in ministry with him. Um, they'd been there, you know, when he was crucified. They were there when he was raised from the dead and appeared to them. And then, you know, when he ascended into heaven, they'd received the Holy Spirit. So for thousands of years now, churches, as they've gone through reformations, have always looked back to the New Testament church to see what are those characteristics. So what were they like? Well, we find out right at the beginning. It says, and they continued in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. Does that sound familiar? Anybody know where it comes, where we think it comes from, anyway? Hmm? The baptismal vows, yeah. Um, every time we renew our vows, or whenever we baptize someone, and we renew our vows, then that comes right after our statement of faith that is the creed, the apostles' creed. But, and this is where it comes from, this Acts. It tells us what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to continue in the apostles' teaching. So what is the apostles' teaching? They like to have lectures. They had whiteboards and got their PowerPoints going. And no, actually, it's something more basic than that. We have it in a different form now. Um, the teaching they had was oral, you know, they, they would talk. They were those stories that we know of as the Gospels, the Scriptures. They would explain to them how the Old Testament related to the New Testament. They would explain to them the things that Jesus did when he walked with them and talked with them. They would explain to them how that then applied to their lives. The Apostles' teaching, to continue in the Apostles' teaching for us today, means to continue in those stories, which means to read your Bible understand the stories, not because somehow or other that enables us to get smart or to do fascinating things, but because what they knew early on was that Jesus came alive to them through the Word of God, because He was the Word of God and is the Word of God. And it's still true for us today. We, in the reading of Scripture, it's not just a tutorial. It's, a, it's an active sacramental act in which we encounter the living Christ who comes to us and shows us his will for us. And so they continued in the apostles' teaching, not because somebody was going to give them a degree, not because somehow or other they you know, were, you know, would make them smarter so they could argue with everybody else who wasn't Christian, but they, they, can, they got into the word because they wanted to meet the Lord regularly. They wanted to encounter him on a regular basis. They wanted to know Jesus. And they were excited about that possibility to know the one who was raised from the dead so that they too could live and share in his resurrected life. Well, the second thing it says that they did is they shared in the apostles' fellowship. You think they had pre-derby parties or... I mean, <laughs> Lots of bratwurst. I mean, what, what, what does it mean to share in the apostles' fellowship or continue in it? They, they hung out. Somehow or other, 
you don't get to know Jesus very well on your own. Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you all, but one of the things I've noticed is that when I'm all by myself and I don't have to listen to anybody else and what their experience of God is, that God starts sounding an awful lot like me. Am I the only one here with that problem? Or I mean, it becomes very easy to become deluded, doesn't it? To, to think that God is actually um, agrees with me. You know, the rest of you, you're all in trouble. But God agrees, unless you agree with me, in which case you're right on track. But, but God agrees with me. And when I begin to realize that's what's happened to me, I begin to realize how terribly frightened I should be. Um, because I remember me. And that's scary. I mean, I've done dumb things. A lot of really dumb. Let me give you an example. I was 17 years old when I graduated from high school. And uh, one of the things I found out on a, at our baccalaureate was that I had received a full scholarship to Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And it was going to pay for a room and board and tuition. All I had to do is have my own spending money and uh, pay for my books for four years. Pretty good deal, isn't it? So off I go to Bowling Green, to Western Kentucky, and I'm, um, I get there all excited. I get a dorm room. I even got a private dorm room. Good deal, huh? Just wait. It goes downhill. <laughs> so I get there, and the first day was great. Got moved in, got my stereo set up, you know, all the important stuff. Um, and I was ready. I had a car, found a job first day. Amazing. Had spending money. I mean, life was good. Uh, got up the next day, went to orientation, did all that stuff. Um, that evening, the power went off. Now, that was particularly interesting because I lived in a tower on the 14th floor. And the windows don't open. And the elevators don't work. What's even worse about it is I had an 8 o'clock class the next morning in, across campus, uphill. Can you imagine me getting up early enough to walk up cam uh, across campus uphill without an alarm clock even? <laughs> Long I am. Especially given that it was sweltering in there because this we're talking about August in southern Kentucky. I mean, it's like 95, 100 degrees, you know, and I don't know what it was inside there. It was awful. Well, you know, you can bear things like that. You survive things, although it was interesting going down the hall to the shower room with no lights and taking a shower, and because it was all internal, the showers were in the middle of the house. <laughs> you had to go in the dark to do it, take a flashlight. So I thought, well, I can do this. You know, I thought I might get a little behind in classes and on, but they would understand because the power's out, and they were working diligently to get it fixed. Two weeks later, the power still hadn't come on. Yeah. I had, I had one afternoon class. <laughs> um, oddly enough, the, I do remember, the main thing I remember about that, those two weeks is that the fraternities were still doing rush. <laughs> it didn't seem to phase them in the least. Um, well, after two weeks, I was done. I said, this is ridiculous. I can't do this. I was homesick. I was miserable, you know, nothing worked, and, and so I went and made a, an executive decision at the age of 17 
I packed up my car, went to the registrar, withdrew from college, and drove home on a Wednesday night. I pulled up in my driveway, and um, my dad's sitting out there on the front porch. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I said I didn't like it, so I quit, and I came home. He looked at me and said, that was stupid. <laughs> and then came what I knew was coming next was, well, exactly what is it you think you're going to do? Because if you think you're living here and freeloading off of me, you got another thing coming. It's not happening. And I said, no, no, I gotta, I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to go back to school. And he said, I'll give you a month. But you better be enrolled in school, and you better have a job. And so uh, I did. Ten years later, I got my undergraduate degree, <laughs> all of which I got to pay for myself. <laughs> oh. And I had to work full-time while going. And the amazing thing I realized about that one is that, did you ever think about that my dad was a lot like God? Does God let you do stupid things? Does he tell you they're stupid things? Does he ask you what you're going to do about the stupid things? Yeah, I mean, I thought, wow, the older I got, the smarter he got. He's pretty, pretty bright for a guy with an eighth grade education. It just amazed me. So, when I look back on my life and I think I ought to be the one running the universe, I always remember that story because I know how that ends, and it's not good. That's why you frequently hear me tell you in my sermons, don't do what I tell you. you know, do what the Lord tells you. If you hear him saying something through me, great, but don't do it because I said so because you know, I'm not that good. It's important to be in the Apostles' Fellowship and the fellowship of the church because all too often, if we isolate ourselves, it becomes too easy to believe that we alone hear God's voice. We need to find other people who are seeking the Lord, and we need to test those things out and say, what do you think about that? I mean, imagine if I'd had somebody down at, at, at the university who, uh, who I could talk to really about it, who I could really trust and say, here's what I'm thinking about. What do you think? What if I had you know, a, a professor that I knew and really respected by then? Here's what I'm thinking. I've got this full scholar. I'm thinking about dropping out and going home. What do you think they would have said? Oh, that's a right on target. <laughs> they probably would have said, are you crazy? But I was listening to myself. All too often, we get into a lot of trouble when we forget to continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Because all too often, we, like sheep, go astray following too much, as Isaiah put it, the devices and desires of our own hearts. And I can tell you, the device and desire of my own heart at that point was electricity and air conditioning. I was a firm believer in it. But in the long run, it didn't help much. The third thing that they did was that they continued in the breaking of bread. That one's a little easier. What is the breaking of bread? Communion. They took communion. Well, you remember last week when Cleopas uh, and his friend were uh, in that room that they didn't know who Jesus was until he took bread and broke it. And suddenly they knew that the risen Lord was in their midst. And, and so that was the experience of the apostles. That was the experience of the early church. Somehow or other, that, that this became this, this thing where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, wasn't just sort of a nice thing to do. You know, by the way, after I'm gone, you know, if you're thinking about me, it'd be great if you happen to you know, 
remember it when it happened. What he, what he was saying is do this, and the word is actually um, in Greek not easily translated. The word is anamnesis, but it, it, and we say remember, and it means remember in the sense that, that remember meant in early English. It means, if I talked about I'm going to lop off one of your members, one of the members of your body, what would you think I was going to do to you? Hmm? Cut an arm or leg or something, yeah, a limb off. To remember is to put together again. That's what it actually means. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he, doesn't, he isn't saying, do this and think about me. He's saying, do this so that I might be present for you again. And so they did. Oftentimes I have people say to me, well, how often should you take communion? And the answer is, well, as often as possible. <laughs> the question would be, how often do you want to encounter the living God? I mean, how, how much is, you know, well, what, does it ever get to be too much? You know, I have people, we have friends who are more Protestant, and sometimes they go, well, doesn't it sort of take the specialness away from communion if you take communion every week? I mean, no, Jesus is pretty special every week. <laughs> he didn't get less special no matter how much you do. I mean, sort of like ice cream. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I never run into ice cream and go, gee, that's just not it. Who cares? I have it all the time. It's boring. Well, if ice cream can do it, imagine what God can do. I mean, surely he can trump ice cream, right? It's always special. It's always meaningful if we do it remembering the Lord's body, if we do it in remembrance of him, if we do it to encounter the living presence of a living God. And then, you know, one of the things we do in our 101 class is we ask people to sign a covenant with the church as you join. One of the things it says is, um, will you promise to attend church regularly? And early on, I had somebody say, how do you define regularly? The answer I've been giving, it's really not very nice, but um, is, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you the answer I give, and then I'll give you the, the one that's probably more helpful. Is, uh, is uh, well, it ought to be often enough that we're not shocked to see you. <laughs> um, but in reality, what is regularly? Well, that... The question is really predicated on how regularly do you want to encounter the one who made you? How often do you want to know the living God who wants to walk with you and talk with you? What is regularly? I mean, I can't imagine ever not wanting it. So for me, it's a lot. And whenever possible. Um, but... That's a kind of subjective thing that each person has to do, but it really is important. And for some people, it's easy for me. I can get to church on Sundays most every Sunday um, because I have to. But <laughs> um, I know we have doctors here, though, that if they're on call, it makes it difficult to be here. So, But do they come regularly? Sure, because they want to be here. And that's really the clue to it is, do you want to be in that place where Jesus is going to be. You know, so, and, and one of the ways you can test that for yourself is when you're out of town on vacation, do you want to find out where Jesus is and go there? Or would you rather say, I'm taking the summer off? And if we really want to take time off from Jesus, is it okay if he takes time off from us? 
These are the characteristics of the resurrected life. And then the last one is they continued in the prayers. That's a tricky one. They didn't get it A, they had to tell them. You all know what the prayers are? I'm being facetious, by the way. It's not tricky. <laughs> what are prayers? Yeah, they, they remained in conversation. But here's the, 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 the real significant part of it. It's they continued in the prayers. They prayed with each other. They talked to Jesus with each other. That's hard. You know, that's really difficult. We can talk to all kinds of people, but to talk to the living Lord with our spouse, with our kid, with our friends, that's a lot harder. I mean, it's a very intimate kind of thing to do, but also incredibly um, uplifting and incredibly um, edifying in the building up of who we are as resurrected people. Because in the talking to God, why do we talk to Jesus? He's bored. Need to hear from us? Why do we need to hear him? So he can show us why we're here. What are we supposed to do? How do we live? What's going on? Now, you could go back and, and continue um, and, and to pick a pastor somewhere and, and do what that person tells you, but you may end up dropping out of college with a full scholarship, and you're on your own. And we've known horrible incidents. Remember in the 70s uh, with Jim Jones where the congregation was drinking Kool-Aid? I mean, it's dangerous to follow a human being. Any human being should be pointing you, if he's truly a pastor, to Jesus and helping you to hear Jesus and encouraging you always to listen to Jesus and detest the voices that you're hearing so that you can hear God. Because the truth is, is that you don't really ultimately need me for anything other than to help you to get to a place where you can hear God clearly. And finally, when we're all gathered around the great throne at the end of time, you know, when we're in the new Jerusalem, guess what? I don't have to wear this collar anymore. I get to be just a regular person like everybody else. I don't have to fool with it anymore. Because I have a priest, and his name's Jesus, and I can follow him. Now, here's the trick to the whole scenario there that, that is really the linchpin of it. What does it say that they did at the very beginning? What's the verb that's used at the beginning of that sentence? No, they continued. It's not a one-time deal. And it's not something, if I want to continue home from here, what do I have to do? I have to go get my car, got to start the car, got to drive, you know, I got to go through traffic, and you know, I got to you know, spend the time and the energy and, and all the resources this is going to take. It's going to cost me $20 in gas probably. <laughs> I mean, but you've got to do what you're going to, you know, I mean, it takes effort. It, it's an active verb. It's not a passive verb. We don't belong to a church. We are church. We don't go to church. We do church. We do the things that church does because that builds in us the characteristics of a resurrected life. 
So what do the fruits look like? We see that in Acts 2. It says that they shared everything in common. You notice that? So when everybody get out their wallet, no. <laughs> they shared everything in common. I had a friend in seminary who said, see, that proves that Jesus was not a capitalist. He was a communist. I was going, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I said, there's one major problem that you have with your logic. And he said, what's that? I said, they didn't do it because they had to. Nobody was making them. They did it because they wanted to. They volunteered to do it. They did it joyfully. They didn't need a, a bureaucracy to come and tell them to do it. They just naturally did it because they wanted to. It's a great barometer for us, by the way. How are you at sharing everything you have in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Did you really sacrifice anything? If you're like me, probably not. I think I'm better than I used to be, but, but it's going to take some work. And here's the catch on it, though. When you get to your deathbed, exactly how are you going to check your bags? All the stuff that's yours, that you own. How are you going to take it? I had a senior warden in West Virginia who once told me, Father Ron, look, I know you, you don't think you can take it with you when you go, and I, I agree with you. That's why I've got Nidra. She's bringing it. Uh, I said, I'm not sure it's going to work, Barto. Um, he was a very wealthy man, too. Then, um, quite honestly, if he was waiting for her, I think she lived for another 15 years after he died. So, uh, <laughs> he had to learn some things along the way. You, when you go to heaven, everything is held in common. You don't get your own personal stuff. We share. And the real difference between heaven and hell for a lot of us is going to be, I want to share my stuff. <laughs> What do you mean share my stuff? What did Jesus do when he needed a donkey to get in Jerusalem? He didn't ask even. He said, go tell him I need one. <laughs> he just, go, go tell a person I need one. Tell him we we'll get it back later. Can you imagine that one? Go, go try back in the subdivision back here. Go knock on somebody's door. Say, I need your car. Can I have the keys? Oh, I'll bring it back. You think that would work? That's the difference between what life is like in the kingdom and what life is like here on earth. That's the difference between a perfect, righteous, holy living and a fallen and broken world. Now, that's not to say that we should be blind and just give away everything everybody tells us or, or, or be stupid or, or any or be a doormat. What it does tell us, though, is that in our mind, we have to begin to look at things differently. Because if we can't, we'll be lost. The second thing that it says that they that were was a fruit of the, these characteristics that they had. It said that they did many signs and wonders. Wouldn't you love to see that? You know, Peter and John go walking into Jerusalem one day through a gate. There's a man begging at the gate. He's lame, and they he, he's begging, please, you know, you know, give me some money. I can't. I haven't eaten. I'm starving. Um, you know, I don't know to do. Well, they didn't have any money. Well, we don't have any money, but we can give you what we do have. You know, we can give you, we can heal you. And they did. How did they know? 
How did they know that? How did they know that if they did it, it would happen? Because they heard the voice of the shepherd. Because they weren't the ones that were going to do it. It was Jesus who was going to do it. And he was the one who wanted it done. And all too often, we have lost the signs and wonders, not because they don't exist, but because we don't bother to be in touch with the Lord. We don't bother to simply do that which he tells us to do when he tells us to do it. And we're suspicious, you know, because we even hear people talk about my ministry. Ever heard that one, my ministry? My ministry is that, well, in reality, none of us really have our own individual ministries. Any work or service that we have belongs to who? Jesus. I mean, everything ends up being his. And we simply do what he gives us to do and say what he gives us to say in the moment when he does. And when we do that, amazing things will happen. There's a, a guy named Simon the Magus who saw these signs and wonders. And uh, he wanted, he said, I'd like to buy that from you. He was a magician. He said, I don't know how you're doing it, but if, I, if you will sell me your secret, I'd like to be able to do it. That's where we get the word simony from, by the way. Um, the apostle said, because you tried to buy the power of God, you shall be cursed and you shall die. And he did. Not because they did it to him, but because God doesn't get bought off. I mean, what are you going to give me then that he really needs anyway? Try buying something for him for Christmas. I mean, it gets to be impossible. You can't do these things on your own. You can't have them as yours to do. You can only exercise that which the living Lord gives you to do in the moment. Because it ultimately all belongs to Him. The church has lost so much of this incredible um, power and, and, and purpose in life. And, and then we get to the last one. It said that they shared their faith and they had goodwill amongst everyone and for everyone. And because of that, the Lord, day by day, added thousands to their number. Those same characteristics that we saw last week on the road to Emmaus of what the resurrected life looks like appear again today in this lesson from Acts. The question for you and me is, do you want to live in the resurrection? Or do you want to live in a finite world? Because that's really where the struggle is, isn't it? You know, because the ways of the world are very different than the ways of the resurrection. And I think all too often what's happened is, is that we sort of accommodate God into our lives. We find a place for him. Sort of like he has a nice room in our house. But that doesn't involve work. Or that doesn't involve my personal life, or that doesn't involve me doing stuff with my friends, or that doesn't involve, you know, my, my financial arrangements, or that doesn't involve um, who I decide to marry. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we might pick. And what we need to realize is that each time that we compartmentalize God, put up this wall, 
and saying, okay, God, you know, I'll handle this. You stay over there in your place. Each time that we do that, even though we're much nicer about it, aren't we? What we are really doing is cutting ourselves off from the source of life and power and, and meaning for who and what we are. And so nobody expects anybody to just jump up suddenly and you know, be Jesus in the world. But shouldn't we really make it our goal, make it our effort, make it our, our striving to get to know him better and better and become more like him and to be able to hear him more and more clearly day by day? Because perhaps in doing that, I'm a little bit smarter than I was when I was 17. And I wouldn't do such a stupid thing anymore. And perhaps in doing that, I might actually be able to do the signs and wonders that he gives me to do. Whether they're really fascinating things like Peter and John did as they walked into the gate, or if they're just a very mundane thing. That a, a fellow who was a bishop went to China in the 1800s. His name was Samuel Isaac Joseph Shereshuski. Was that for a mouthful? Um, he was from Eastern Europe, came to the United States when he was a boy, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, went to the seminary I went to actually, uh, became a missionary to China, and went off and became the first missionary bishop to Shanghai. Was stricken with a debilitating uh, neurological disease where he was crippled up like this and couldn't do anything. And the only thing he could, that worked on him at all at, by this point, because he couldn't talk either, was his middle finger. Just one middle finger on his right hand. So you know what he did for the rest of his life? Nope, couldn't talk. He took that middle finger and he took a typewriter and he translated the Bible into Mandarin. Because Jesus told him. And for that, he was sainted by the church. Now, that's not real glamorous, is it? But I bet if you're a Chinese Christian, it's pretty powerful. It means a lot to you. What kinds of things will generations to come 100 years from now be able to say about you that were meaningful and powerful? How will you help someone who is not even yet born come to know the living Lord who would not have them die but would have them live forever? How will you help them to know the joy of abundant life that is the resurrection experience as we join with him in his? Because when we share it, when we do it, the strangest thing, thing happens. The more that we give it away, the more it fills us up. The more we give Jesus away, the more of Jesus we can become. The only thing for you and me to decide is do we want to. Amen. You have just been listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.